This is FemPower Health. Each week, top women's health experts dispel fact from fiction. The most important pelvic floor exercise is not the Kegel. Challenge the status quo. It's never easy to challenge the accepted leaders, and especially if you're a woman. Provide perspective on why your healthcare journey may be so tough. All of that fear and worry, it all upregulates our nervous system, puts us into fight or flight mode, and increases our pain sensitivity. And what you can do about it. The number one thing is you have to advocate for yourself, and you have to be prepared. Your journey to get empowered starts now. You have to be very much as a patient, be proactive and bring up this issue. You almost have to tell the doctor, could this be menopause? And even then, there is no guarantee that the doctor will say, oh yeah, you could be right. You have a good point there. Most of the time, you have to push to get the right tests. You have to ask to be referred to a secondary clinician in a hospital, like a gynecologist. You may have to even go private. Welcome to FemPower Health. Georgie here. In today's episode, I interview Dr. Mandy Lenhart, who is one of the co-authors of a book called Premature Ovarian Insufficiency and Early Menopause. After seeing so many of the struggles with her own patients and realizing that there's so little information out there, she decided to put her expertise on paper. And like I like to do with many of the authors that I interview on this podcast, instead of going through all the content that is in her book, I decided to pull some nuggets out and we agreed on some of the nuances that we should cover in the episode that you may not find in the book. And what I love about this conversation is Dr. Lenhart is clearly incredibly passionate and knowledgeable. So take a listen. And if you're interested in learning more about menopause as well as infertility, check out my Spotify podcast playlist where I've organized other episodes by other experts. So let's listen to Dr. Lenhart. Hello, Dr. Mandy Lenhart. It's such a pleasure to have you today. We are here to talk about your awesome book, which I'm showing so that when I do the video version of this, people can see it, The Complete Guide to POI and Early Menopause. So why don't you first start out by giving us a bit of your background and what inspired you to write this book that clearly people are craving to uh, learn more about? So I'm a, I'm a medical doctor um, and I specialize um, or I had further training after medical school in general practice, which would be um, like a family doctor in the US and, and in, in North America. So um, I'm, a, I'm a GP here in the UK and I then went on to do further training in um, female hormonal conditions, in particular menopause, um, but also PMS, so premenstrual mood disorders. Um, and as a female doctor, you see more women um, anyway. So, and I found that there was a lack of knowledge that I had before I did the training, and I realized I need to do more to help women. Uh, in my in my day-to-day practice I need to more to know more about it because in medical school um, we and also in our GP training we do not really get exposed to menopause um, and hormonal conditions in great detail so I did the training myself I got um, certified as a certified um, menopause specialist with the British Menopause Society and um, I work predominantly now in, in 
in women's health. Um, I've also done further training in uh, nutrition, so I'm a, a certified nutritionist, but this is not my main expertise, it's more uh, of an add-on um, knowledge gap. I needed, there was a knowledge gap I needed to close because it um, is an important part of, of some treatments that you can offer to women to resolve health issues. Okay, well, thank you. Thank you for that introduction and your dedication to this topic. What's happening actually here in the US is a lot of folks are starting to subspecialize. And so there's the menopause society and a lot of folks are getting the certifications there. You can even go on the website to find mm -hmm. menopause experts. So it sounds like it's a global um, issue. So why don't we dive right into POI and early menopause? And so for those who don't know, and I'm assuming you're reading the show notes or doing your research that led to this topic, but just in case you didn't know, um, POI is primary ovarian insufficiency, but there's kind of a difference between POI and early menopause. And so I, I thought it would be helpful for you to first start by defining the difference between the two, and then we can dive into each of the, the different um, aspects. And by the way, your book does an amazing job of walking through so many aspects of dealing with this situation. And so what I wanted to do is leverage this interview to kind of go through some of the things that were really unique and interesting in the book that I thought would require further discussion through this live conversation. But truly, anyone who is struggling with this, I just think they need to use your book because there is so much in there and we can never cover it in a 50-minute episode. So again, let's go back to the definition and then we can take it from there. Yeah, and, and you know, Georgia, you, you made a good point there because that was the reason why we wrote the book because we we wanted to help more women beyond um, my co-author, Hannah Short, and myself, beyond our own personal clinical practice because it is so complex and we cannot, we don't know everything, but we wanted to put it all together. So going back to your question, um, menopause, first of all, is a natural event. It normally happens from the age 45 onwards, average age in the UK is 51. That is the time when you have your last period. After 12 months over the age of 50, if you haven't had a period, you would be called postmenopausal. That is entirely natural. Some women seek help for this, other women have no symptoms and are quite happy. Other women will, will have symptoms and, and treat them. Now, premature, so POI is premature ovarian insufficiency. It used to be called primary ovarian insufficiency. So the terminology over time has changed a little bit. We call it now premature ovarian insufficiency. And then there's also early menopause. And the difference is age. So a woman who is menopausal between the ages of 40 and 45 would be called early menopause. That would be called early menopause. So if you've stopped your period or you have very, very few and very infrequent periods between the age of 40 and 45, and there is no other reason for this like pregnancy, you would be in early menopause. Women under the age of 40, and this needs to go back to all the way towards teenagers, so any girl or woman between the age of 15 and 40 who is has ovarian dysfunction, who, who has ovaries that do not work properly, would be called, she's, she's in POI, she has POI. POI comes with slightly different, um, the, the symptoms are, are similar, but it there is maybe some ovarian function, so that it's, it can fluctuate, it's a little bit going forth and back sometimes, whereas menopause is a definite state. It isn't, there's nothing 
there isn't, usually there aren't any fluctuations anymore. It's a definite state, your periods have stopped, and that's it. Whereas POI can, depending on how other, other complex conditions you have, can, can fluctuate. Um, so this is basically the difference. Age, but also um, the, the variability in hormonal production that there, can still, there are still rem remnants of uh, some production of ovaries, potentially in some girls and women with POI, whereas menopause is really, there's nothing, or that there is really, a, this, is, this is a definite state of, of menopause. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. Now, can you naturally reverse it? Because I'm just thinking about um, a couple of people that I've spoken with who have had it and are very frustrated because it seems as though seen as, okay, you have it. Okay. You have infertility. Okay. Good luck. Mm -hmm. And there's like this group of people who are like, no way you can definitely reverse it. And you've even said you can go in and out. So, um, I guess talk to us a little bit about what might cause it and how that might impact whether or not you can have an impact on mm -hmm. reversing it, so to speak. Yeah, so um, the, our ovaries are glands. We have two ovaries, one on each side. They're the shape of an almond, uh, slightly bigger than an almond, and they are, they are hormone glands. They make an, a variety of very important hormones, estrogen, testosterone, progesterone, and DHEA, and a number of other important hormones. But when we look at causes affecting the functioning of our ovaries, we can not in the majority of those who are affected, we, we do not find a reason why they don't function. However, in the most common reasons are usually genetic, so that there might be, you might carry a gene that prevents the proper development of your ovaries, for example, fragile X or Turner syndrome. So some girls um, would notice this very early on, so they would not go through a normal puberty, they would not have ovarian function that leads on to sexual development, for example, breast growth or periods. So they would know by the age of 15, all their friends have had their periods, yet they, nothing has happened on their side, they look a bit flat, they, you know, in, in terms of breast development, they think, am I just a late bloomer? When they go and see a doctor, the doctor might do some investigations and find that the ovaries are underdeveloped or not functioning properly and this leads on to treatment. Then there are the type of women who have had a normal puberty. They've had functioning ovaries from the start and then something happens along the way uh, during their lifetime um, up till the age of 40. Now there are other reasons can, that can cause um, your ovaries from, from not functioning properly. Autoimmune conditions are very common. There isn't always a causation, but there is a very strong correlation between autoimmune conditions and ovarian dysfunction. Um, one of them might be Addison's disease, where you've got antibodies against your adrenal glands, uh, thyroid um, antibodies, Hashimoto's. So we know that the correlations of about 40% of women with POI also have an autoimmune condition where you develop antibody, antibodies from your own immune system that attack some tissue in your body, your thyroid gland, your adrenal gland, your ovaries, your muscles. Now, we aren't always sure whether this leads on to ovarian a POI, ovarian dysfunction, 
we don't quite know what's chicken or egg or whether it's just a correlation, but we do know there's a very strong correlation and you can make antibodies against ovarian tissue as well. So this is another reason then that we have metabolic conditions like type 1 diabetes. Again, that's an autoimmune condition or type 2 type diabetes. We don't really know why our ovaries are quite resilient organs, but they're also very fragile. Um, then we have conditions, or not conditions, but we have situations where um, a woman has um, certain treatments that damage her ovaries. So if you've had cancer elsewhere in your body and you have chemotherapy, these are very toxic substances. They're meant to kill the, the cancer cells, but they may also damage your ovaries along the way. You may have had radiotherapy to the pelvis to treat cancer. There are women who've had their ovaries surgically removed. So if you are in surgical menopause, You've you have no ovaries yet. Both of your ovaries were removed, maybe together with your womb, depending on the reason. It may have been cancer, it may have been something else. So there is a variety of causes that are very, very individual that lead to women and individuals ending up without ovarian function or with very reduced ovarian function. And that's the bottom line. But in the majority of those who have PUI, we do not always identify a cause. Got it. Okay. And why do you think that is? So you're saying 40% autoimmune conditions. What mm. percent is it with something that happens in their adolescence? Um, so genetic yeah, uh, conditions genetic. are probably, yes, they're, they're probably a bit rarer. Um, okay. And they get often, if you live in a country with a good healthcare system, they get so Turner syndrome is about one in a thousand girl, female girls born will have Turner syndrome. It's not oh sorry one in two and a half thousand. So it's not uncommon, and you don't always know when you look at the baby. It takes time to to pick up developmental delays maybe, and and obviously you'll notice. So any any teenage girl who's fifteen by the time of of the age of fifteen who hasn't had a period should go and see a doctor, um, and then she she will have investigations and then uh, usually in the younger cohort in the younger age group we'll find a more more um, more clear reason uh, because they have genetic testosterone on in the in, in women maybe in their mid to late 20s we don't always know you can investigate them and all the tests come back as normal yes you may identify an autoimmune condition that that attacks other tissues in your body but whether that was the actual reason why your ovaries stopped working we don't know um, so that is very frustrating sometimes. Um, and the other point that you made that I want to go back to, is it reversible? Well, no, no, it isn't. It isn't always, so it isn't reversible as such. Um, we, we do think there's a theory that in some individuals, ovaries age faster than the rest of your body. So the, the ovaries, the, the eggs, uh, deteriorate and age um, and, and and go you know, go much go way much faster than the rest uh, the, of your body and um, the, this there's nothing you can do about it really um, there are ways of preserving fertility if you've had it before so if you have functioning ovaries and you're going to have cancer treatment there are ways of preserving existing fertility, but if you've never had functioning ovaries, you cannot reverse it, you cannot bring them back. Once the follicles, the eggs are gone, they're gone. And this is basically, so we also have to say is that whilst PUI and early menopause are not the same, having PUI often 
leads to early menopause. Right. Not always, but whereas early menopause has um, no probability of conceiving, there's about a 5 to 10% chance in POI that some women may, on, may, may go on to conceive naturally. Although I don't want to put hopes up here because it is extremely rare that it happens naturally, but it can happen, whereas menopause is a definite state where it doesn't happen anymore. So, of course, fertility is only one aspect. The other aspect is the lack of hormones that you're missing out on when you haven't got functioning ovaries. Um, so it's a very complex condition. It's a chronic condition that isn't reversible. It is treatable, it's manageable, um, um, but it isn't reversible because there's nothing to reverse to back to. Once the tissue is no longer functioning, you, you cannot re revive it, if that right. makes sense. It's like having type 1 diabetes, your pancreas, your pancreatic cells that are meant, are meant to make insulin, once they're no longer there, you cannot revive them. And I appreciate you saying that this is more than just about fertility because, you know, I came on this passion for women's health after my own fertility journey. And I actually find that a lot of women become extremely educated about their bodies mm -hmm. once they start having fertility issues. But then as I dug more into this, what I realized is missing in so many conversations is the root causes for any condition. Because like with POI, someone might think right away, oh my goodness, my chances of having a child. But as you were alluding to, it's so much more than that because our bodies are meant to function in a certain way. And in our reproductive years, it's meant for us to be able to create babies should you choose to have one. And so if all these mm -hmm. things aren't operating the way that they're meant to, then it creates other potential health issues and side effects, correct? That is, that is very much correct because the, the hormones that are made in our ovaries um, contribute to our overall well-being. We have estrogen receptors in every single cell of our body. They, um, for, for example, just, just touching on bone health, um, bone mineral density, Bone mineral density is cons uh, consolidated up till the age of 25. Puberty, for example, is a very crucial time during development. That's when you strengthen your bones. That's where you, when you accumulate your entire bone mineral density that you have for the rest of your life. So by the age of 25, what you've got then, you've got for life. And from then on, it actually goes downhill if you're not careful, if your lifestyle isn't good. And menopause then is the next step when, when bone density it starts to decline. So if you lack estrogen during that crucial time of development, you will start off with brittle or weak bones. By the time you're 25, you will not even have the, the strength of your bones to, to go and live on. So this is just one example, but, but these hormones are also important for our emotional development, our energy levels, um, our, our skin and hair, our uh, brain function, cognitive function, emotional resilience, testosterone is important for libido, um, sexual development. Um, so they, are, they play important um, roles in our bodies and not having these hormones at the right time or not having them at all is, uh, put, makes you very vulnerable, puts your body at risk of having other health conditions. So just to give you an example, uh, premature um, ovarian insufficiency or early menopause is associated with an increased risk of dementia, osteoporosis, heart disease, um, muscle wasting, um, frailty, and, and if untreated, early death. Um, 
I don't want to scare anyone out there because this I'm just mentioning this here, but that doesn't mean we can't treat it. That doesn't mean it will happen. It means that when we're aware of it, we can take action. So please don't panic, but be aware of some consequences that if we do nothing, in the worst case scenario, that's how important these hormones are. And that's what I want to get across. No, absolutely. So what do you think, um, I guess what I want to go back to is how mm -hmm. you can go in and out of POI. And also how you were saying that 40% of those who have this have an autoimmune condition. So am I hearing you right that just treating the autoimmune condition doesn't necessarily reverse this? No, so you don't go in and out of POI, you have POI, okay. um, but when we measure there, so you may have, you have POI, let's say you haven't had a period for two years, and let's say you're not being treated, you don't receive HRT, you don't receive treatment. It may be that you have the odd period every couple of years, a little bit of bleeding here and there. So very occasionally, let's say you are very relaxed or you have a um, good lifestyle and, and your body is in a, in a healthy, healthy state, your ovaries might at that time produce a little bit of estrogen. I've had women who, um, when I saw them, they had very, very low estrogen levels naturally. Um, they couldn't have HRT. Then we worked on their lifestyle. We worked on, on managing stress and inflammation. And then when they came back, we measured their levels again. They may have been a little bit higher. And we were like, oh, where does the estrogen come from? Now, I'm not talking about levels that would be physiologically normal in any other woman who doesn't have POI. I'm talking about it slightly more. So POI is still serious. You cannot reverse you. If you have POI, you don't go in and out of it. But what happens is when you treat these individuals and you think you found a dose of treatment, for example, HRT hormone, or in, in North America it's called menopause hormone therapy. Um, so if you replace the hormones, still you no longer have, sometimes, you support the body's functioning and ovaries, you give them a little break from tr trying to make a little bit or, or maybe some ovarian function gets, gets reactivated and temporarily you might actually contribute to the overall estrogen in your body from your own ovaries. So your own ovaries make a little bit of estrogen temporarily and then maybe you have bleeding that you don't want and you think oh why do i have bleeding now you know that was one of the things that i quite enjoyed not having bleeding but actually that's because you had fluctuating hormone levels and that's why the treatment is not um definite it's sometimes you start something it works for a while and then things change again and then it no longer works you have to tweak and adjust the dose so occasionally we see hormone fluctuations that probably come from your own ovaries unexpectedly and that's when going back to your question about the autoimmune conditions yes if you do treat autoimmune conditions if you reduce inflammation if you reduce stress if you have better nutrition if you sleep better and overall you're in a better place health-wise if you as you will treat the underlying cause ovaries will or i'm not saying will have a higher chance of having showing some functioning during that time whereas when you're stressed you're not sleeping you are you're over exercising you're not eating properly that is when you put further stress on these little glands that are already very very vulnerable <laughs> that does that make sense no it does and maybe i'm oversimplifying this your ovaries are almost just a lot more sensitive than to the average person of not taking care mm -hmm. of yourself and also like 
sensitive to these autoimmune conditions, they just react a lot more heavily that if you're not doing all the right things, they're just a lot more impacted. I mean, I don't know if that's a fair, potentially oversimplified statement, but that's almost the summary that I'm hearing from you. Completely. Um, let's assume an individual who hasn't got POI has normally functioning ovaries, maybe a 20 year old woman. Um, your periods are, in my view, a vital sign. So if this woman is not on birth control or not uh, using anything to stop her periods like a IUD um, or any hormonal contraception, she should have periods every single month. A, a sign of vitality of health is having periods. This is your prime fertility time, you know. I'm not talking about a 46 year old woman where things can go a little bit out of, out of kilter, but a 20 year old woman, if she's if she has a healthy body, should have periods. I have seen, and, and when you're referring to reversibility of ovarian function, I have seen women who have functional amenorrhea. This is a condition, so basically when we go back to basics, the brain communicates with the ovaries. It tells the ovaries what to do to, to mature an egg each month, to pop the egg out, wait for pregnancy to happen. If it doesn't, you start again next month and then you have a period if it doesn't happen. So you can put your body into a state of such extreme stress that the communication between the brain and the ovaries is so disrupted that it, it doesn't work anymore. So your ovaries stop listening, your ovaries stop functioning. This is what we simply this is very simplistic, but I, that's what we call functional amenorrhea. And there are certain things that, that, for example, contribute to that stress. So exam stress, you're at the university, you've got complete, you're, you're completely stressed out because you've got exams coming up. These girls can have very much period disruption. Then not sleeping, sleep deprivation, so going out or not eating properly, being underweight, so eating disorders but also over-exercising. So um, typically your female driven, ambitious athlete who has very little body fat because that's a desirable feature in her sport, let's say a gymnast or someone who needs to be on the thinner side of being uh, successful in her ballerina. So then combined with erratic eating, combined with uh, a highly um, uh, you know, stressful lifestyle, she can put her body into a temporary menopause. She can stop her periods just purely because of the stress she, she puts on her body through a combination of lifestyle factors. If she, this condition, could mimic early uh, POI or early menopause, but it isn't, it's reversible. If you address the underlying causes, that is fully reversible. Yeah. So if you identify this athlete who has energy, who is um, uh, energy deficient, dysfunctional eating, too stressed, not sleeping, over-exercising, if you manage that, her periods should come back. There's no reason that they shouldn't, because there was nothing ever anything wrong with her ovaries in the first place. But she, she got herself into a state where it was ex where. Your body was telling her body was telling her you are in no state to have a baby now. You cannot carry a baby now. Look at how stressed she is. She's not sleeping. She's not eating. She's always on the go. How would she ever deal or cope with a baby? Let's let's not do this. You know this is so. This is my one of the messages that I really want all the listeners to to learn from this is that 
see your periods as a vital sign. It's, it's telling, it's your body telling you that everything is okay. And if you've previously had periods and they stop for four than, more than four months, then please see a healthcare professional, a doctor or someone who you can talk to, to investigate this. So let me ask you this then. If you're on birth control, can it mask POI? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Really? Yeah, so it's one of the treatment options as well. It is uh, not the, uh, the, the preferred first-line treatment. That would be a hormone replacement. But we have in combined in the combined pill, which contains two hormones, it's a synthetic form of estrogen, usually ethanol estradiol, which is not the same hormone that your ovaries would, would make. It's 10 times stronger in terms of f- efficacy. And then you have a progestin usually. So the, the, the contraceptive pill does nothing else, or birth control pill does nothing else than again, switching off the communication between the brain and your ovaries in a synthetic way. So your brain thinks that you're pregnant, um, and you are replacing your own ovarian hormones with synthetic hormones and thereby you stop ovulation, ovulation which is needed to conceive a child, to pop, pop, pop the egg out, the sperm comes along and so on. So you stop ovulation by disrupting the communication between the brain and the ovaries. And yes, if you are left on the birth control pill for let's say 10 years, um, the Bleeds you might get every month are synthetic artificial withdrawal bleeds. They are not bleeds based on ovulation or um, with or um, natural periods. They are artificially induced withdrawal bleeds. Um, nowadays, we actually leave women on the pill for much longer than three weeks at a time, so they don't always have a bleed each month either. So they will not know if they have PY if they don't have any other symptoms. So they may be on this tablet for five, 10 years. And when they come off, that's when they realize things aren't how they should be. So, wow. <laughs> so <laughs> so let, me, let me ask you this then, because if, how important is it that I know that I have POI earlier rather than later? Because if, if the birth control pill, as an example, has some of these hormones, I mean, it's not mm-hmm. HRT, then like, I guess maybe a more simplified way to ask my question is I have POI. I don't know. I have POI. I'm on birth control. And then I get off birth control and discover it. Like how bad is that versus learning earlier? Because we've talked about how your body needs to operate a certain way through your reproductive years to give you an, a more optimal, healthier life as you're older. And so if we're now delaying the diagnosis, mm-hmm. how much could that impact somebody? It, it basically, it isn't, um, it, it wouldn't be a disaster, but it would remove some of your options that you would have had with regard to looking at more effective treatment. So let's say you have been on the pill and you come off the pill and you realize your periods do not return within a year after coming off. And then you start having menopause symptoms, you start having hot flushes and night sweats and you go and see your doctor and they said, oh yeah, we'll come back. And then it doesn't and you're feeling tired, fatigued, not functioning. And then they do a blood test and they show your estrogen is really low and you have a say to it. So you, they, they, you then get the diagnosis. Now, it you can't 
you can't change the past, you can only change the future. So this individual would then have to discuss with a specialist what the, the symptoms are to treat this appropriately. Had, had she known it earlier, she could have had this discussion earlier. Does that make sense? Let's say she had found out five years earlier, she could have talked about fertility you know, uh, options, she could have talked about maybe switching to HRT instead, which is uh, the first line treatment, which is better for the bones, better for the brain, better for the preventive cardiovascular disease. However, having been on the pill would have been better than nothing. Okay. You know? So let's say the worst case scenario is a girl who is a gymnast, who is underweight, and, or someone who, who hasn't had a period and actually quite enjoys that. <laughs> so, you know, it's not glamorous to have it. It's not, it's not great. We don't enjoy it. You know, some, actually, some people actually have the most horrendous pain or they associate periods with something really negative. And I get that. And, but let's say you, you, you've, you've got POI and your periods have stopped and you haven't got major symptoms, so you go along and you function quite well and, and you ignore it all and you do nothing. And after five years you're told you now have osteoporosis and now you have heart disease and you have a high risk of dementia because it was left untreated for five or ten years. That is the worst scenario that worse scenario than having been on the contraceptive pill for 10 years not having known about it not having had symptoms and yes you can deal then with it then and yes you some of the options you could have had 10 years earlier with regard to treatment and optimizing it having regular bone scans and checking your heart health all of these you didn't have but hey ho you know you can't change the past but now you can be proactive about your health and seek the best possible treatment and that i think that's the difference but I don't think it makes it help. It's helpful to go back and and yeah. and think. Oh, I should have. I should have. You know. And it's always important to look at the now and see what you can do now. I just think it's important for people to be aware of kind of how all the pieces fit together in their health to be able to make um, the best decision for them for the long run as well. Um, but I think just seeing this flow of how things work with the different things we do to our bodies throughout our lifetime is, is so um, important. And like now all these questions in my head for like my own medical history now, I'm just completely fascinated. So another question is, would, would it be fair to say that the way to treat POI is the same as what you would do for those in menopause? Like it's, it's is it basically the same? You basically are saying, it's the exact same treatments or what would you say are the nuances? Cause in reading your book, I'm reading it. I'm like, Oh wow. I feel like I'm reading, you know, all the different things you do for menopause. And there were a couple of nuances, but overall it seemed to be very similar. Is that a fair statement? Yeah. Okay. That's correct. I mean, um, so as I said, ovaries are glands that produce hormones. And if they no longer produce these hormones, we can now we are in a lucky position and imagine 200 years ago, we, we didn't have that 100 years ago we didn't have that we now have made um you know pharmaceutically made hormones that are identical to our own hormones and that's 17 beta estradiol that's progesterone testosterone we can now replace these hormones in the form of a gel a spray a patch a tablet there's so many different ways implants you know um if you're lucky enough to live in a country where you have access to this 
we would say that replacing these hormones uh, in the form of hormone replacement therapy would be the first line. The reason for that is that you have much more flexibility to find the dose that's right for you. So you have a lot more um, flexibility with flexibility with regards to the dose you use of estrogen to get it right, to get into the bone protective range of, of level that you want. And whereas one of the, the secondary line treatment options is, is the pill, the hormones in the pill are better than nothing. Mm -hmm. And for some individuals, they are a good choice, they are the right choice. And you, it's all about making an informed choice about what's right or wrong for you. You know, a 17 year old girl may not want to be on HRT. She may actually want to be on the birth control pill, like all of her friends. And you can have this discussion with her. And if she prefers that, you can say, you know what, There's, you will not harm your body by, by being on this for the next couple of years. But let's have annual reviews. Let's check you every year. Let's see if that, that pill controls the symptoms you have and if it's enough. And you can try this. This is one of the options. If it works for you, you, you keep going. And if it doesn't work for you, then we can uh, try a different treatment. Uh, and this is very much down to the individual's choice, uh, but they need to know, and to, in order to make an informed decision, they need to know what the best treatment is, and the best treatment would be hormone replacement therapy, because it replaces the same identical hormones that your own body would have made, similar to using insulin. You know, type 1A or uh, diabetes, um, if you have a, a type 1 uh, diabetes, you cannot make insulin, you would be dead within hours <laughs> of not having it. So you just, um, if you're lucky enough to, you, you know, you're using insulin now, um, it is no longer a death, a death penalty. Um, and, and so I think if you see it like that, um, you, you, can, you can use uh, appropriate treatments for this. And yes, it is very similar to the, the, the hormones that we order. They are the same hormones that we use in naturally menopausal women over the age of 45. Um, but the, the uh, difference is that the younger person is very much, very much relying on this is, is for functioning and, and development and, and feeling and preventing um, conditions that might kill you later on and have a harmful effect on your body. Whereas if a 55-year-old woman decides not to start hormone therapy, that doesn't mean she can't be a healthy, happy 80-year-old 30 years down the line. Uh, provided her lifestyle is good and her genetic, uh, her genetics are good, that doesn't mean it at all. Whereas if you leave a 20-year-old individual without estrogen, she probably will have osteoporosis by the time she's 30 or 35, right? So it 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 brings the whole aging process very much forward to a time when it shouldn't be happening, and that's why it is much more important to treat this early, effectively with the right molecules with the right hormones and pay attention that it's not just about symptoms but also about you have to tweak it a little bit you have to do blood tests which we tend not to do in older women that you just try something and either works or not you kind of go up and down and fiddle with it there we need to closely monitor these these uh, affected individuals who have PUI and, and really get it right and we don't have much time for complacency we can't say oh Let's just not bother for a couple of years and just try again in, few, in, in three years' time. You don't have that time, you know. You, you want to, to get the estrogen into their system if you can, if they don't have contraindications. Whereas, let's say, in a 51-year-old woman who, starts, who stopped the period and she decides not to do anything, but three years later she's saying, actually, now I'm ready. I'm having 
symptoms now. I'm not sleeping. I don't want to be put up with that. Put up with that. She, she has tried without, and she identified it didn't work for her. So she now has the option of trying something else. The 19-year-old doesn't have that time, you know, right. you, you want. And that's purely for the prevention of further very serious health consequences if it is left without treatment. Okay, that makes sense. So I want to get back to HRT um, in just a minute, but I want to go back to, because, because, you know, you started off by saying you went and got special training for this. So where are we in reality today with doctors being able to properly diagnose these women like what what should we yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm almost scared of the answer but um I think it's important to talk about because you know one of the yeah. things uh, with Fem Power Health is I my mission is to educate women to be able to advocate mm -hmm. for themselves in doctor's offices and I think it's always important to have that reality check so so what should we be aware of so it very much depends on the country you live in live in okay. of course you know um it is uh it, we have we are very privileged here in the, in the UK. Um, menopause awareness in general has very much increased in the UK. We have a real movement of, of women, active women educating each other, more and more doctors training. So there's really no excuse here in the UK at least. I can't speak for any other country, but I know that it's not the same everywhere. That, that there's no excuse for any doctor not to be aware of, of this condition. Now, most doctors have a pretty good understanding now of uh, what happens in natural menopause. They don't always take women seriously who are younger. So let's say you're 35, you haven't had a period for six months, you're not pregnant, of course, right? So they do a pregnancy test, you have hot flushes, you're not sleeping, you're really anxious, you're very achy. Would every doctor pick up on that? Probably not. You know, you have to be more proactive. Um, if you have these problems, they may run a few tests, but they may not immediately think early menopause, PUI, early menopause. At least here in the UK, the healthcare system is very stretched. It is free at the point of, for users, but they're very stretched. So you have 10 minutes with your doctor. You have to be very much as a patient, be proactive and bring up this issue. You almost have to tell the doctor, could this be menopause? And even then, there is no guarantee that the doctor was say, oh yeah, you could be right. You have a good point there. Most of the time, you have to push to get the right tests. You have to ask to be referred to a secondary clinician in a hospital, like a gynecologist. You may have to even go private. But so yes, so it is very much still left to the patient to ask and to push and be proactive to get the right treatment. I would thing that GPs do not need to diagnose this condition from their end. But in the UK, what they are, what they should be doing is they should have the consultation, identify the problem, realize that this is serious, this is not normal, maybe run a few baseline tests, but refer to a specialist from then onwards. It is a very specialist uh, diagnosis because you have to get it right, because it could be PCOS, it could be uh, you know, uh, functional amenorrhea. Yes, it could be stress-related. So you have to run the right blood tests to identify, to tell what is what. And no, a GP doesn't have to do these tests, but what their job is, is to refer to the person who knows how to do these tests. And they do exist. There are enough of, of us here. But this is where the hurdle is. This is where the obstacles are to really gain access to the person who knows. Um, if your GP puts up a barrier, 
and you have to fight for this, then it takes a lot of your energy. I don't know what it's like in the US and, and I would like to hear more about this, but here in the UK, if you're lucky you have an understanding doctor, it's a little bit of a game. You might be very lucky to have a really good doctor and most of my colleagues are very well informed and they may not be able to diagnose it properly, but they will be able to send them off. But there will be some where women have to go not just once, but twice and three times over to get where they need to be. Anything else you wanted to comment there before we go back to the HRT? Women are not small men. Um, we need to acknowledge that. We need to ask as doctors, we need to be proactive towards our female patients and ask the right questions. And when we go back to saying that periods are a vital sign, similar to having a temperature or so running a fever or having, having a, a, a fast heart rate or, or having, having pain. So, or, or going to the toilet, being able to, to um, you know, I don't know, <laughs> empty, empty your bladder. <laughs> so yep. this, these are vital signs. You know, someone who doesn't, hasn't been to the toilet for more than 24 hours is not well. Someone who isn't be able to drink water isn't well. So when you have your annual checkup with the doctor, I wonder how often have they asked you, well, how, how are your periods? You know, have you got periods? You know, so we need to ask this question as a part of a general checkup. Um, if you're lucky enough to have these checkups, then these need to be essential parts. And we also need to ask women, not just have you got periods, but what are your plans with regards to children? For example, there is a correlation between women, mums who are, have an early menopause and daughters having a slightly higher risk of that too. So if I know, if I have a patient who's 41, she's in early menopause, she has two daughters, I would say tell your daughters that you have early menopause because they have a, it doesn't mean it will happen, but they have a slightly higher risk compared to a woman who goes through menopause at the natural age. So tell them, make them think about how many children they want, do they want children at all, if they are not, if they don't want to, if they're not ready yet and they're 25, they may want to consider having a scan, having a checkup about their egg reserve, maybe they want to consider egg freezing because they want to leave it another 10 years, but by then it might be too late. Does that make okay. sense? Yeah. So doctors need to ask proactively, need to learn to ask women about their reproductive health, including having got periods or not, not just about contraception. Everything's about contraception. No one thinks the other way, <laughs> you know. Um, so yeah, you are so you. right about, about that. And we're a long way off, um, sadly. But I think we're making progress. Yes, for sure. Absolutely. HRT, like a lot of people are fearful because, you know, back in the day there was this, I think it was the women's health study mm -hmm. and some other things where there was like, now that they've done further analysis, they're realizing HRT isn't as scary as everyone had thought. And then other things that had also caused um, these concerns. But it seems like in the UK, there's still controversy with hormone therapy. And I um, in, talked to a couple of experts that I know in this space, and one had asked me to ask you this question. Um, so what she wrote is, the pendulum has swung um, so far to pro- hormone replacement therapy that some experts are starting to push back by pointing out that not all women need hormone therapy. Mm -hmm. And in the case of POI, most experts agree that hormone therapy should be used at least until normal age of menopause, but there's some debate after that. So can you just talk about what's going on there? And if you had any caveats or words of wisdom mm -hmm. to share based on this um, controversy? 
Yeah, it's not. I wouldn't call it a controversy. I think it's just a discussion that happens okay. at the moment. So when we go back to the idea that natural menopause is a natural event. Now, now I'm not saying that everything that comes from nature is is is, is a good thing. Like cancer is a natural right. thing. Pneumonia is not good. Anyway, so but it is an event that happens to every single woman who lives long enough. Um, and the question really is, do we need to medicalize that? So some women see it as a sense of empowerment to go through this rite of passage almost, almost like puberty um, by themselves. So they, some women are lucky enough to not have many symptoms that affect their quality of life. And when they speak from their own personal experience, they say, oh, I did this naturally on my own. I just eat healthy food. I exercise. I, I'm great. I haven't been happy. I, you know, I'm... 57 and I'm in the, in the best place of my, my life so far. Now, that's great. That's good for her. And I'm so happy for her. But there are women who do suffer quite badly. There are women, you know, the suicide rate, according to the statistics in the UK, is highest between the age of 49 and 54. Women often attempt suicide when they're younger, but they never succeed. Somehow women there is that last threshold, you know, where they don't quite succeed, even though they're very depressed in a bad place. But when they really achieve, when they succeed to kill themselves, that's in that time, the time between 49 and 54. And you, you tell me that that isn't in some way related to maybe the hormonal tran um, transition they go through. So we need to take it seriously. But at the same time, we need to find a balanced discussion that we do not make it compulsory for women to go on HRT who do want to do this the natural way without HRT and maybe just look at lifestyle nutrition and, and not drinking alcohol and but at the same time we need to help those women who require the help so we shouldn't whereas in the past let's say 10 years ago it was really difficult for women to get a prescription for HRT from the doctor because they were scared by the doctor. They said, oh no, and you can't have it. Look at the risk. You know, the WJ study from 2002 really put doctors off prescribing it, put women off taking it. But we mustn't, now that the, this view has a slightly different, we, we mustn't leave those women who need HRT for their quality of life and for their general functioning in limbo, we should give make, give them all the information they need to make an informed decision as to whether they they take that prescription or whether they go and make lifestyle changes. Um, but those women who decide not to take this shouldn't equally feel bullied into taking it. You know, they shouldn't feel scared into not taking it. So when you say the pendulum has swung the other way, that meant there are some social media post that you might have come across where it says, oh, osteoporosis happens to 50% of women. If you do not take HRT, you'll get osteoporosis, or you get dementia, or you get heart disease. That's nonsense, right? It's complete and utter nonsense. It's the same fallacy that we told women in the past where we said, if you take HRT, you'll get breast cancer. So there are extremes, and you always, if you read this, you always have to question, what is the agenda of the person writing this have they got a huge private clinic that they need to feed you know to get more and more women go through come through the door to prescribe hrt what is their interest in this whole thing what is their benefit in putting the scary message out and that's why sadly um, it has become very confusing because we have more awareness we have more specialists on social media who give 
that bit of advice each and one of us <laughs> give our advice but um, we need to move away from extreme messages that scare women either way. You know, HRT does not cause breast cancer in every woman who takes it. Equally, if you don't take HRT, you do not inevitably end up with brittle bones, you know. So this is a, that's why there are these polarized discussions now. And I've heard women say, you know what, all my friends are on HRT now and I'm not. And all they talk about is oh, you must, you must go on HRT. They don't even listen to me. They don't say, how are you? You know, and, you know, wait for the answer. They, they think the HRT is the panacea for all evil. It isn't, you know, it is a, the right treatment for the right person at the right time. But those who decide not to take it should not be fearful of making a mistake or fear of missing out FOMO, right? So, um, okay. This is where the debate is at the moment, and going back to POI and early menopause, completely different cup of tea. For those women, it is a treatment, an essential treatment to prevent long-term health problems. And yes, they should take it up till the age of 51, because that's when they would be expected to go through a natural um, menopausal transition, where their estrogen levels drop naturally but if they decide for their quality of life to stay on the treatment they're on because it works for them then i personally would recommend they stay on because most women who start hrt are at that age so why would they need to stop it suddenly when most women now only just start it so the benefits will carry on if they are have found a treatment that works for them but if they do decide to come off them that's a valid choice too you know but we need to give them the information we need to tell them what are the benefits if you carry on what are the downsides and what are the the downsides if you don't carry on and just to be clear there is no increased breast cancer risk in women under 40 uh, under 50 who take hrt your body would be expected to make the very same hormones that you replace and they don't cause you breast cancer either. So do not be scared if you're under 50, you are on HRT, there's no increased breast cancer risk. The increased breast cancer risk that is very tiny, by the way, is only seen in women over 50 after five years of taking HRT, just to be clear. So please do not worry, carry on with whatever treatment you want if it works for you. So let's talk about diverse populations and how we see the menopause story and the POI story playing out in that population. Any just summaries that you wanted to provide just to create awareness? Yes, of course. So um, access, equal um, access to healthcare is not a given at the moment, uh, not in the UK and probably not in most countries. So there are certain groups of women who are currently um, excluded or not excluded, but they will have um, obstacles to access the same quality healthcare that women from the, 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 the sort of women I see in my private practice, for example. So you have women from different ethnic backgrounds, women who have English as their second language, um, who have no awareness of menopause at all, who would not be on Instagram reading uh, posts about it. Um, there might be cultural differences where, for example, early menopause, um, that is obviously very much tied to infertility, where infertility is a, is a major stigma and where your worth as a woman is defined by your reproductive abilities. So you may got married in certain cultural um, environments uh, for the purpose of having children and if that doesn't happen, then your husband may no longer want you because you're no longer useful. So this is a, these are cultural differences, and um, but also for some, in some uh, cultural um, communities there, there is um, it, it's 
just not talked about enough. Uh, it's, it's, so uh, we know that women from um, black communities often um, do not talk about it as much or, or don't have access to, to, to the clinics or the, to the specialist services. Then we have neurodiverse or hard of hearing women, often they struggle to access podcasts, for example. You know, we have lots of podcasts, but when you're hard of hearing, how do you access the information, the excellent ex you know, information you put out there, how do they access it? So, um, and the other thing is also um, the trans community, you know, trans men uh, need to know about fertility options. They need to know what, how, the, the treatment, cross-sex cross hormones, how or puberty blockers, how that affects the fertility and their ovarian function later on as well. Um, so and so th th there's lots to discuss and there are lots of specific groups that are currently, that we cannot reach easily and that where we need more um, awareness in, in easily accessible ways for everyone um, so that we can reach all women and all individuals who need the information. No, I mean, it's, that is such a big entity to, to solve for as well. I mean, um, and I like to bring it up as awareness, but it's, it's like, so then what? And I think it's a big conversation to continue having um, because we do need to, to figure that out. Um, but again, I highly recommend that people read your book. And I also just wanted to acknowledge um, Dr. Hannah Short, who is also a co-author. And I think you mentioned that earlier um, in the discussion. I did want to just mention this because uh, I'm starting to see it more on LinkedIn as well around how employers are starting to um, provide more support to women who are going through menopause or like have period issues and things like that. And you write a really lovely chapter about what employers um, can be doing. And so just wanted to acknowledge that. And I think for a lot of these women's health conditions, like we just have different bodies and we need different type of support and it doesn't make us bad or wrong or anything like that. So just kudos to those who are acknowledging and making changes to, to help women still be able to do their jobs, um, but feel good during them. So what would be your takeaway? What would you be, have your one statement be that you want um, people to know or take away from this discussion? Um, I would say um, if you are affected or you think you are affected, it can be a very severe um, diagnosis to deal with. And just remember you're not alone. Um, seek help and, and remember you're not alone. You don't have to go through this by yourself. Um, look for the right people to help to support you. Do not do this by yourself. It's, it's difficult. It's hard, but there's always hope. There's always something you can do about it. Um, so, yeah, you're not alone. Thank you. And I did want to actually, since you mentioned that, your book has wonderful quotes from people who are struggling with um, POI and early menopause. And so I think that'll just give more evidence as people read your book to like hear these quotes and be like, yes, I am heard, because I'm sure a lot of those quotes will sound familiar to people. Um, who are struggling. So thank you so much for putting that effort in as well to really paint the picture. Um, but thank you for your dedication. Thank you so much for making time. Um, it's been so lovely to chat with you and I can't wait to publish this episode. Thank you, Georgian. It was a pleasure um, speaking with you.